It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 307 for August 26th, 2012. This week, I explained how I upgraded a Windows 7 notebook computer to Windows 8 last week. So this week, I'll explain why it didn't work out so well. Part 3 of a series on how to speed up a slow computer considers the addition of a solid-state drive and suggests checking your power settings. In short circuits, post-INI is going away, or perhaps more accurately, being absorbed. Fifth graders in 1995 predicted how the Internet would work, including cats. If the recent Microsoft security updates caused some problems for you, you're not alone. And after 25 years, Microsoft gets a new look. Last week I described how I upgraded a notebook computer to Windows 8. Now that the final operating system code is available to Microsoft TechNet subscribers, the upgrade worked as expected, but there was a conflict between the Toshiba PowerSaver application and the new operating system. Every time I started this system I was asked, would you like Toshiba Power Saving Technology to turn on the optical drive? Regardless of how I answered the question, nothing ever changed. Now, allow me to be totally clear about this. I don't blame Microsoft for the problem. Microsoft can't test everything. The conflict wasn't the hardware. It was with an add-on application supplied by Toshiba. But I also don't blame Toshiba for the problem. After all, Windows 8 isn't yet generally available. That doesn't happen until October. And by then, I would hope that Toshiba will have a solution to the problem. Someone like me who installs new operating systems before they've been released to the public simply have to expect some things not to work quite right. Generally speaking, I am not a fan of upgrading Windows. As far as I'm concerned, the best way to obtain a new version of Windows is to do one of the following. Buy a new computer that comes with the version of the operating system you want. Or, if the hardware is fairly recent, install a fresh version of Windows on the existing computer wipe the drive, start over. This is one place where Apple and to some extent Linux provide an easier upgrade path. Even so, I generally will attempt an upgrade because sometimes the process does work flawlessly. In this case, it didn't. Even when I located the Toshiba PowerSaver service and turned it off, the operating system still couldn't see the optical drive. Beyond that, booting the system took far longer than it should have. The problem clearly wasn't Windows 8 because booting was much faster under the Windows 8 preview partition on the same machine, and the optical drive was visible there too. The Windows 8 preview installation was on its own partition, so it was in effect a clean installation that excluded all of the Toshiba apps. Well, that told me two things. First, Windows 8 will work just fine without the Toshiba applications, and second, The problems I was experiencing were entirely the result of upgrading from Windows 7. So the solution was obvious. Wipe the drive and reinstall. I deactivated all of the installed Alien Skin plugins, BlowUp 2, Boca 2, Exposure 3, iCandy 6, ImageDoctor 2, SnapArt 2, and ZenFX 2. 
but the On One Plug-In Suite 5 reported the license number is not valid and could not be deactivated. Then I deactivated the Adobe Creative Suite 5.5 and Ultra Edit Studio. Deactivating these applications makes reinstalling them easier because there's no need to contact the software publisher and have some counters reset. So, starting around 6.45 on a Saturday morning, I booted the system with the Windows 8 installation DVD, deleted the extra partition where the Windows 8 preview had been, and formatted the disk as a single drive on one partition. At 7.55 in the morning, I was ready to start the installation, and at 8.13, the installation was complete. That's right. The installation really did take just 18 minutes. I spent the rest of the day installing applications and updating various settings. By evening, I had what was essentially a brand new computer. On Monday at the office, I did the same thing to another notebook computer. That upgrade had gone well enough, but there was really nothing on that computer that needed to be saved, and I really liked the clean installation so much that it simply seemed the right thing to do. Now, although both of these computers are middle-aged notebooks, both of them feel like they're brand new. This installation on a slower 32-bit system with considerably less memory still took only about 20 minutes from start to completion. I'm still trying to decide whether to spend much time modifying the Metro interface. Because the notebook doesn't have a touch screen, I'll spend most of my time on the desktop, and most of the applications I'll use are pinned to the taskbar. When I want to run an application that isn't pinned to the taskbar, pressing the Windows key and typing a few characters, such as, for example, ACC to start access, makes the process easy enough. I could shuffle the various Metro tiles around, and on a touchscreen device, I would. But absent a touchscreen, I'm not sure that the minimal effort required would be worthwhile. Something I admitted earlier, but feel compelled to admit once again this week, is this. We really don't need the Start menu. I was one of those whose initial knee-jerk reaction was that Microsoft was making a terrible mistake in eliminating the Start menu in favor of the Metro Start screen. Well, that prejudice continued, as all good prejudices do, until I acquainted myself with the facts. If you're using a mouse and a keyboard, you have nothing to fear from Windows 8. One thing that's immediately apparent, though, is that I wish the notebook did have a touchscreen. I have an Android tablet that has a touchscreen, and I've become rather used to that, so I really miss not having it on the Windows notebook. Anybody who has an iPad or an Android touchscreen device will be likely to want a Windows touchscreen device. And this could be really good news for the hardware guys. All right, all right, all right, all right. Sounds good. Let's put this together. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at how you might speed up a slow computer. You know, that computer that seemed like it was so blazingly fast when you bought it, but now it's like quicksand and you're stuck in it and you can't get out. You can restore the old performance by identifying what's causing the computer to be slow and then taking actions that'll speed it up. Now you have to remember that you'll never be able to make it any faster than it was initially. And the illustrations I use on the TechBiter Worldwide website are for a Windows 7 system. Even though I did that, most of the processes will work on Vista. 
And most of them will work on Windows 8. Heck, most of them even work on XP. The names may differ slightly, but most of what you'll see to make the improvements will be there. My first suggestion this week would be to install a solid-state drive. Unless your computer is only a year or two old, this is something you really should consider when you replace the computer, though. The process of converting the operating system's hard drive from traditional hard drive technology to SSD isn't particularly easy. It's actually not particularly hard, either. The performance increase can be substantial, but there is a fair amount of work and unless you're planning to keep the computer for several more years, this is probably something best reserved for some time in the future when you buy a new computer. SSDs are extremely fast. They're also a lot more expensive than traditional drives, and they have a limited number of read-write cycles. Ideally, what you store on a solid-state drive should change infrequently. That makes it a really good choice for the operating system and applications. The computer will start faster, and applications will load faster. The number of write cycles for these drives is finite, but it's large, millions. So operating system updates, software updates, and software installations are, as far as the disk is concerned, essentially non-events. And I call it a disk, even though it's really not a disk. It's just a clump of memory. As I understand it, and I don't yet own one of these drives, drive capacities are somewhat overstated, so that as bits of memory expire, the drive will still be at or above its stated capacities for a considerable period. There are a couple of numbers you ought to consider with SSD devices, the data transfer rate, and the size of the drive. Most current computers use a serial ATA interface, or SATA, and these can run at 3 gigabits per second, SATA 2, or 6 gigabits per second, SATA 3. And yes, there is a SATA 1, but its throughput is just 1.5 gigabits. Faster is always better, of course, but it'll depend on your computer's disk controller. And note that I said gigabits per second, not gigabytes per second. The size is stated in gigabytes, as with other disk-based drives. I would recommend buying an SSD drive that's large enough to hold your operating system and all of your applications, and then using standard hard drives to store the data. Most of the techniques I've described so far in this series are do-it-yourself functions. But unless you're comfortable with the process of opening the case, installing hardware, moving the operating system and such, this is one that really should be left to the professionals. But I mention it here only because it is something that you should be thinking about for your next computer. Something else you can do is take a look at your computer's power settings. Even if the computer is a desktop system that's always plugged in, it may not be set up for optimal performance. To find out, press the Windows key and then type Power Op. You can type Power Operations if you want, but Power Op is enough to move Power Options to the top of the Start menu, so select that. You'll probably find that a balanced power plan is enabled. If you want the best possible performance, select the High Performance option or click Change Plan Settings, and then change the advanced power settings. The easy solution would be to select high performance, but if you want to make sure that specific policies are set, selecting that change advanced power settings is a better choice. You'll find a long list of settings to consider modifying. Changing these settings may cause the computer to consume more electrical power, but it will also improve the computer's responsiveness. 
And that's it for Episode 3 of the Faster Computer Series. The fourth and final installment will be on next week's program. In short circuits, a year from now, we won't have Post Any to kick around anymore. Many internet service providers have offered a service called Post Any to reduce spam, but I've never found it to be particularly helpful, mainly because of the number of messages it generates to ask me if another message is spam. If I have to go look at the other message to tell Post Any whether the message is spam or not, what's the point? It does learn over time, but even after I'd tried it for a year on my TechBiter account, PostAny was still bugging me too many times. So I went back to my old multi-step system that uses Spam Assassin on the server, an anti-spam plug-in for my email program, and filters. Additionally, I maintain blacklists for particularly pesky spammers. By this time next year, Google will have eliminated PostAny by incorporating some of its features into Google Apps for Business, as with PostAny, it won't be free. Writing on a Google blog, product manager Adam Dawes said that Google has been integrating PostAny's security and compliance capabilities into Google Apps. In the past two years, he says, we've developed and released numerous PostAny features directly in Google Apps, such as user policy management, email content filters, archiving, retention, and e-discovery with Google Apps Vault, and many more. The new services will cost $50 per user per year. It compares to $33 per user per year for the current PostAny Google Message security system. Dawes says that new offerings will be more flexible, more powerful, and easier to use. Google acquired PostAny in 2007, paid more than $600 million for it. It was primarily designed to give Google an opportunity to sell email services to corporate clients, those folks were used to having on-site servers and their own applications to deal with security and compliance issues. Between acquisition and now, Google added malware scanning and other services that weren't present initially in PostAny, and just recently the services achieved ISO 27001 certification. That means Google can now sell its services to government agencies and regulated industries. So, it appears that PostAny will be forgotten but not gone. You might think that fifth grade students don't pay much attention to what's going on in the world around them, but if you think that, here's something that may cause you to reconsider. Start by thinking back to 1995, 17 years ago, and think about the state of the Internet. In 1995, Tim Berners-Lee was still working to develop what would become the World Wide Web. We had the Internet, but finding information required services such as Gopher. The Mosaic web browser existed, and Netscape had been released in 1994, but everything was still really primitive. In 1995, a bunch of fifth-grade students in Montana created a public service announcement 
in which they encouraged young people to visit their nearest library so they could access the Internet. Those speaking on the PSA, and it's only 60 seconds long, predicted that by the time they reach college, and keep in mind most of them are now in their late 20s, the Internet would be their telephone and their television. What else would you find on this future Internet? The kids predict sports scores, recipes for tasty dinners, and cats. Students at the Ray Bjork Elementary School in Helena, Montana, were the stars of the PSA that won a 1996 Local Ante Award for Best PSA. If you view the video, the short 60-second PSA is on the TechBiter Worldwide website, but you'll find more on YouTube. If you watch what's on YouTube, you'll see some things that seem a bit anachronistic by today's standards. For example, a significant amount of time is taken up explaining how to identify hyperlinks. Those are the blue things with underlines. And what the back and forward buttons do. The back button and the forward button were both pretty new in those days, because the original browsers didn't have either one. One student drew a comparison between the internet and a cordless phone. And, you know, given today's access to the web and the entire internet from a handheld device, perhaps that was inadvertently prescient. One student even predicted the ability to have more than one web page open at a time, something that's common now, sometimes even multiple pages in multiple browsers on multiple screens. But all this got me to wondering... I wonder, what are today's fifth graders thinking about? Did you have a little trouble with that last batch of Microsoft updates? Well, if you did, you're not alone. It took days for me to get the current group of 15 or so updates installed, and it's not just you and me, either. I've heard from others who had similar problems, and when some of my usual workarounds for bulky updates didn't work, I found that a lot of people were having problems. By manually installing eight of the updates, I was able to successfully complete the process. But that process took 90 minutes. Now keep in mind, that's about five times as long as it takes to install all of Windows 8. I mentioned that earlier, 15 to 20 minutes. Now I'm not going to call this a disaster because we throw that word around all too casually. Stub your toe? Oh, it's a disaster. Find that you need more supplies for your second grader? Huh, a disaster. Well, boo-hoo. What you and I encountered is a relatively minor annoyance. It's not what we wanted, but there's a pretty easy workaround. The updates had been trying to install and failing on my desktop system for the past several days. I knew that primarily because the computer is where I can hear it at night, and I'm currently leaving it on to make sure that a large batch of photos gets backed up to Carbonite. Because the computer is where I can hear it at night, I noticed that it rebooted twice. Yeah, speak of cats. Well, because the computer is where I can hear it at night, I noticed that it rebooted twice at 3 a.m. every day. For reasons not known to me, 
I wake up every morning within a few minutes of 3 a.m., look at the clock, and go back to sleep. I've done this since I was a teenager. For the past several days, though, I've been hearing the little startup chime from Windows. The fact that it happened twice told me there was an update problem. So on Tuesday morning, I turned off all of the updates and manually installed the first. It succeeded. Leaving for the office, I let the others install, but I found that they had failed when I returned home. My usual process, when there are repeated failures, is to manually install the one that failed first individually, and then try all the others. But this batch seemed to have a lot of internal conflicts, so I finally just adopted the process of installing one, and rebooting, installing the next, and rebooting, installing the next, and rebooting. Before doing that, I even tried my alternative big gun process of looking up all the knowledge base articles, downloading the patches, and manually installing all of them before rebooting. Usually that works. Not this time. I wonder if Microsoft is embarrassed when they see something like this on the web. As of this week, Microsoft has a new look, and consider this more of an aside than a story, but I note it in passing. Microsoft introduced the new look this week ahead of the release of Windows 8. The current logo has been around for a while, 25 years to be exact. The company says that this is an incredibly exciting year for Microsoft as we prepare to release new versions of nearly all of our products. Yeah, it's going to be a pretty interesting year for them. From Windows 8 to Windows Phone 8 to Xbox services to the next version of Office. The Microsoft blog says you'll see a common look and feel across all of these products providing a familiar and seamless experience on PCs, phones, tablets, and TVs. This wave of new releases, Microsoft says, is not only a reimagining of our most popular products, but it also represents a new era for Microsoft. So our logo should evolve to visually accentuate this new beginning. Well, that's what the PR folks had to say. And on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see the current logo, and some of the old ones, too. On a Microsoft blog, Jeffrey Meisner noted that you'll see the new logo when you visit the Microsoft website. You'll find it on each of the Microsoft retail stores in Boston, Seattle, and Bellevue. Soon, it will be on all other Microsoft stores, too. Microsoft plans television ads, and you'll see it there. But you may also see the old logo for a while. Fully implementing a change like this takes time, says Meisner, so there may be instances where you'll see the old logo being used for some time. Check out the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see one of the logos that goes all the way back to the 1970s. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.